Amen. Well, that's what we're here to do today is to worship that beautiful, wonderful, powerful name of our uh, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, we're so glad you're here with us this morning to do that. Um, If you're visiting here with us this morning, you're getting in kind of near the end of a study this summer, an exposition of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that we've titled A More Excellent Way. So if you'll take your Bible and turn there with me uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're just going to look at verse 7 this morning. And uh, next week, we'll finish the chapter. We'll look at all of verses 8 through 13 uh, next time. I've titled this morning's message, uh, The Best of My Love. Uh, Before we uh, open God's Word together, uh, let's pray. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we thank you for that beautiful, wonderful, powerful, matchless uh, name of Jesus Christ, that name that's above every name. And Father, we thank you for the promise of Jesus that he said, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast him out. Oh, Father, there's so many things in our lives for you to cast us out for, Uh, but you promise us in your word you'll never do that in your grace and your love for us. You've delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your Son. You've taken us from the darkness to the light. Father, we worship you today, and we thank you for all that you've done for us and all that you want to do through us. Father, we're needy people. We have so many needs in our personal lives, our families. We have national needs. Our country's in desperate need of you. And I pray, O oh God, that you'll give our leaders wisdom, give them courage and strength in these times in which we live. I pray that you'd do a great spiritual work of renewal and revival in our country. The people would realize there's no hope outside of you and begin to turn to you, Father, and repent. Father, we pray for this COVID outbreak in our country. We pray that a cure would come soon. We pray that in the meantime, you'd build a a hedge of protection around our families and this church and our our, our church community. We pray that for other churches in our community as well and across the country, that you'd protect us and, and build that hedge of protection, Lord, around us. Father, we pray for our student ministries this week as they travel to Colorado for their summer camp. We pray that you will keep them well and healthy. You'll keep them safe. It'll be a great time of of refreshment for all all who are there, Lord, a great time of drawing closer in intimacy with you. Father, now we ask that you'll strengthen us to be faithful ambassadors for you in this world in which we live today. And you tell us in the word that your word, O God, is settled forever in heaven. We pray that you'll use that inspired word now to build us up and strengthen us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 7. We'll just be looking at verse 7 this morning, but uh, to get the context. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind is not jealous, love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Oh, may the Lord bless both the reading and the exposition of His inspired Word. There's a story I read about a man who'd been married for 25 years, and he asked his wife, he said, would you still love me if I didn't have any money? And his wife thought about it for a moment, and with a smile, she said, yes, of course I'd love you, silly, but I would miss you. 
Now, we laugh at that statement, but if we're honest, sometimes our love can be like that. It's a love that's based on what other people have and what other people can give to us, what we can get from them, but not what we can uh, give to others. But agape love, the kind of love we've been studying here in 1 Corinthians 13, isn't like that. Um, It's a love that never fails. Um, It's not conditional. It's a love that sacrifices of self for the highest good um, of another. And we see that here in this quartet of of virtues, of love virtues here uh, in verse 7 this morning. It's kind of a a flurry of rhetorical phrases. As the Apostle Paul tells us that love bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. And then finally, the beginning of verse 8, he puts the capstone on it all and says, love uh, never fails. There's an enduring nature to love. And agape love is a love uh, that comes through. A true love, agape love, lifts us up, but it won't let us down, is what Scripture tells us. Now, if you remember the context here of 1 Corinthians 13, it's sandwiched between two chapters that are about the use and the abuse of spiritual gifts. And Paul's exposing the selfishness and the pride of the Corinthians in their use of these gifts. And so the end of verse 12, he says, and I show you a more excellent way. Paul points them to a more excellent way, and that excellent way is the way of love. It's the way of agape love. And the word agape is found 10 times in these 13 verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we've seen in in verses 1 to 3 the priority of love or its necessity, and that we've been looking the last few weeks in verses 4 through 7 at this profile of love or the, the nature of love. And the Apostle Paul here defines love by describing love. He tells us what love is by showing us what love does and doesn't do. And we have here 15 descriptions of love. Again, we've said they're all verbs. Uh, The two basic umbrella descriptions, love is patient, love is kind. Then there's eight things that love does not do, eight negatives, eight things love excludes. And then it ends here with five positives. These four that we have in verse 7 and then in verse 8, love uh, never fails. So we have what love includes, but also what love excludes. And Paul is basically telling the Corinthians in this chapter, what love is, you're not. Now, that's a pretty searching statement to make about somebody. should be sobering. What love is, you're not. We want to make sure that's not true in our lives. We want to make sure that what love is, we are. And I pray that as you've been reading and studying and thinking about these messages and the Holy Spirit's been bringing them to bear in your life and my life, that more and more we'll be able to say uh, what love is. uh, That's what I am. That's what I'm becoming more of. Now, we'll continue looking at all of that this morning here in verse 7 with this quartet of love virtues. Now, in verse 7, this quartet of virtues all follow the same pattern. Uh, The Greek word there, panta, means all or it can mean all things or always. And that's actually first. So in the Greek, it literally says all things bears, all things believes, all things hopes, all things endures. The word all is put forward for emphasis. And in the translation I'm reading here, the New American Standard, it says bears all things. But some of your translations may say always protects. So some will have the word always, others have the word all things. Really, they're kind of synonyms in many ways, but I'll I'll use the word all things since uh, that's what the New American Standard I'm reading from this morning has. But the first thing here it says about love is love bears all things. 
Uh, the word bears here means to bear up, or it has the idea of to cover or protect or support. Um, uh, the similar word to this word is used back in Mark chapter 2, verse 4. Remember, they brought a man to Jesus to, to be healed, and that they couldn't get in, so they go up on the roof, and it says, they dug a hole in the roof, and the word there for roof is the same word used here for the word bears or protects. Just like a roof is a, a covering or a shelter, love covers and shelters. Again, the NIV translation says, love always protects. So love supports and protects. And I want to look at two aspects of this this morning. Love covers in that it covers the sins of others. It shelters other people. But also, love carries the burdens of others, and it supports. So I want to kind of tease out these two thoughts here this morning. The first one is love covers the sins of others. That is, it shelters. Uh, love protects. Love doesn't unnecessarily expose or broadcast the faults and failures of others. If you love somebody, you're not always broadcasting their faults to other people. Love covers over the weaknesses and the failings of others. It doesn't draw attention to the faults of others. Now, a lot of times we like to do that because we somehow think it makes us look better, to kind of point out the weaknesses of others. But when we love someone, the Bible says, we won't do that. Proverbs 10, 12 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Proverbs 17, 9, he who covers a transgression seeks love. James 5, 20, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save their soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Now, love doesn't cover up sin. You know, if someone commits a crime or there's something that, that needs to be exposed for a reason, certainly love doesn't do that. But it does cover. It's the instinct of love to protect those that are loved. And so it minimizes the shortcomings and the mistakes of other people. Uh, there's a lot of biblical illustrations of this, but a couple came to mind this week. Uh, Genesis 9 with Noah. After the, the flood, the deluge on the earth, and, and all the time spent on the ark, Noah, the only righteous man on the earth, when he gets off the ark, what's one of the first things Noah does? He gets drunk. You remember the story? It's a sad picture of the depravity of man. He gets drunk and intoxicated. He's sprawled out there in his tent. He's naked. And you remember two of his sons come, and they cover a blanket over him, throw a blanket over him. And they won't even look at him. They go in backwards because they don't want the picture of their father's failure to be engraved on their minds. They cover over the, the failure and the sin of their father. And, of course, one of the brothers didn't do that and mocked him, and he was cursed for that. But I think we see from this that we're to be quick to throw a blanket of silence over the faults and the failures of others. Remember with that Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph and Mary. Mary becomes um, pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And, of course, Joseph at the time doesn't know that. And Matthew 1.19 says, Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Joseph had no desire to expose or to stigmatize Mary. And that is the way of love in Scripture. Love covers what's unattractive in others. It offers shelter to the shortcomings of others. It's wonderful to be around a person who loves us, who will shelter 
uh, the shortcomings in our lives. And look, we need that in our lives. We need it in our, in our homes and our families. We need it in our marriages. You know, you're around couples sometimes, and one of the members in, uh, of, the, of the couple will begin to share all kinds of faults and failures about the other person. You just kind of cringe when you're around them and feel sorry for that person who's just having all their faults and shortcomings exposed. The Bible says love doesn't do that. We don't do that in our families. We don't do it with our children. Children don't do that with their parents. Again, we know each other's shortcomings, but we're not about exposing uh, those and embarrassing others because of them. Remember when I was growing up, I would uh, sometimes hear preachers tell a lot of stories about their own family. And uh, sometimes they would tell stories about their children, maybe an unflattering story about one of their children. And I'd always sit there and wonder, man, I wonder what it's like to be their kid, you know, sitting there kind of listening to that being exposed. So I made an agreement with my boys when they were younger, when I became a pastor, I said, I won't get in the pulpit and share your shortcomings with everybody if you won't go around the church sharing my shortcomings with everybody. And it's a pact of silence that's worked pretty well for us over the years. But no one likes that, right? I mean, you can go around, all of us can, and run people down and tell about every fault and failure they have. Love doesn't do that. And, you know, Jesus has done that for those of us who've trusted in him. He's, he's uh, thrown a blanket of mercy over our transgressions through his death and resurrection. Isaiah 53 says he's pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes or his wounds were healed. 1 Peter 2.24 says he himself bore our sins and his body on the cross. So Jesus has covered the record of our law breaking. And we need to seek to be like him. Love covers the sins of other people. It provides shelter for them. Now, a second aspect of bearing, uh, of bearing all things is love carries the burden of others. It's support. It's not just shelter, but it's support. Now, think about it like this. Doesn't, love doesn't bear the troubles of others, B-A-R-E, but it does bear the burdens of others, B-E-A-R. So we're not going to go out and bear them and tell everybody about them, but we are to bear one another's burdens. Uh, turn a few pages in your Bible over to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6 and verse 2. Galatians 6, 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. But then down in verse 5, it says, But each one will bear his own load. You said, Well, which is it? Well, in the Greek here, these are two different words that are used. When he says in verse 5, each one is to bear his own load, what he's saying is, You and I have to, sh- have to shoulder our own burdens. And the word that's used there in bearing your own load was used in that day like of a backpack or a knapsack, something you carried yourself. And so you and I all have responsibilities and obligations that we need to bear ourselves. Have you ever run across a person, they don't even want to bear their own responsibilities and obligations. They want everybody to bear that as well. So the Bible says, bear your own load, carry your own weight, carry your own backpack. But in verse 2, bear one another's burdens. That word means a crushing load, a load that one person couldn't carry. So when we're broken and burdened in life, we need people to come along and to help us uh, get underneath uh, that crushing load. And I would simply ask you this morning, do you do that? One of the temptations in life for all of us is to stay away from people that have a crushing load because we don't want to help them. We don't care about them. 
We want to kind of get away from them so we can kind of live our life without having to really bear the, the, the burdens of, of broken and burdened and hurting people. But one of the things love does, love bears all things. It shelters people in their sins, but it also supports people um, in their burdens. Love protects. Now, the second thing love does is love believes. Love believes all things. Now, that doesn't mean that love is naive or blind or undiscriminating. It doesn't mean love is gullible. Um, it doesn't mean that love will just swallow anything and everything. It doesn't mean that love is, uh, can be relativized or compromised in some way. Because if it really just meant love believes everything without any condition, that would go against verse 6, the previous verse that says, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. So we're not talking here about a naive acceptance of everything. It's like a story about a, a mother whose daughter brought home a very rough-looking uh, young man that she was very interested in, maybe even in marrying this guy really looked, really looked like a rough character. So the mother was talking to her daughter about him. She said, well, is he nice? And the daughter says, well, of course. If he wasn't nice, why would he be doing 5,000 hours of community service? <laughs> Love's not gullible, right? It's not naive. Um, but it does trust and it does believe. Now, what it means here, I think, when it says love believes all things, love isn't overly suspicious or cynical. All of us know people who are very suspicious people. They're very cynical about life. The Bible says love isn't like that. Love errs on the side of trusting too much rather than too little. Uh, Gary Enrig says it like this, love fights suspicion and seeks to take a positive view of circumstances and people. It is not naive, but neither is it cynical or pessimistic. It chooses to trust rather than to distrust. It chooses to give the benefit of the doubt to put the best construction on appearances. I like that. Love cuts people some slack, right? It believes all things. And think about this. As God's people, we can believe all things because we know that God works all things together for God to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Now think about this in your own life. The people who've impacted you and influenced you in your life are people who believe in you. And I think of, in fact, I was in my office this morning praying before I came down here to, to, to uh, preach, and I was thinking about people in my life who've encouraged me and that way and believed in me. Some of you who've been at this church a long time will remember uh, my friend from up at Liberty University, Dr. Harold Wilmington. I mean, he went to be with the Lord a few years ago. Um, a great encouragement in my life. I, I was thinking about my friend from Dallas Seminary, Dr. Stanley Toussaint. These are men that believed in me more than I believed in myself. And they were constantly, when I was with them, they would encourage me and uh, they would strengthen me and they would uh, speak words of confidence and belief and trust into my life. And you think about that in your own life. Isn't that true? The people that have had the most impact on you, and by the way, the people you want to be around are the people who believe in you, who believe what God can do in and through your life. Um, I was very fortunate in my life with my parents who were believers uh, to have parents who encourage me, but I would say that's really my mom's spiritual gift in many ways. Uh, my mother has an ability to believe in people. She never, ever gives up on people. Um, in fact, I think she believes in, in people more than she believes in herself. And uh, we all need mothers like that. And I think about our world today and all the trouble it's in, and if a lot more mothers like that were around, how much different our world would be. 
I pray that you've had a mother like that. If you're a mother, that you'll be that for your children and grandchildren. That's the kind of person people want to be around. And that's the kind of person who influences other people. W. Graham Scroggie years ago said this, Love takes the best and kindest view of people in all circumstances, as long as it is possible to do so. Love communicates confidence to people. It, it tells people, I believe in you, and expresses encouragement. And it believes people, people can do better in life uh, by the grace of God and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We need to love people that God brings into our life by encouraging them and by believing in them. A love that, that communicates confidence and expresses encouragement. We need that in our families. We need it in our marriages. It would be wonderful to have a spouse that expresses encouragement and, and communicates confidence to you. We need to do that with our children and our grandchildren. Think about the difficulty and the struggle that children and our grandchildren have today in this world that uh, they're growing up in. They need all kinds of expressions of encouragement in their lives, spiritually and in every way. We need to do it with our coworkers and with our friends. Some of you here maybe who are educators and, and deal with students in school, you need to, to do that with them. They need a lot of encouragement. We need to build other people up in love. I listen to classical mu music a lot during the week, and uh, this last week I was listening to uh, Beethoven's Seventh Symphony as I was studying, and I noticed that Leonard Bernstein was directing the, the orchestra. And I, reminded, I was remembered, reminded of a story about him. His father, uh, Samuel Bernstein, uh, deeply discouraged him from pursuing music. And his father, Samuel Bernstein, was an immigrant. He realized the American dream. He'd opened a, 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 a store and, and a business that was a hair and beauty supply business. And he wanted his son, Leonard, to take over that family business. But uh, Leonard was, was set on becoming a musician and indeed became a professional musician. But a few months after his famous Carnegie Hall debut on November 14th of 1943, which made him famous overnight, a journalist asked Leonard Bernstein's father, Sam, if it was true that he'd refused to pay for piano lessons for his son. And his father famously replied, yes, how in the world was I supposed to know that he would turn out to be Leonard Bernstein? <laughs> Now, I like that because you know, you're, you're dealing with these little kids and you know, you're looking at them and you think, how in the world could I ever believe that this person could turn out to be this person? But love believes all things. And you think about it, Jesus was like that. He's there with his disciples with a man named Simon. And he comes along and says to him, Simon, uh, your name is going to be Peter. Your name's going to be the rock. And the other disciples must have almost fallen down on the ground laughing. I mean, this guy, Peter... He's going to become a rock. But Jesus saw the shifting sand of his life and what he could make him by his grace and turning him to a rock-like man. But love believes in second chances for people because it believes the gospel can transform uh, the lives and the hearts of people. Love believes the best of others, and it brings out the best um, in others as well. Maybe there's somebody right now that you're tempted to give up on. Uh, why not seek by God's help to try to reclaim uh, the life of that person? Uh, you and I need to be about that daily in our lives. And, and one other thing here before we move on is I, I pray that God will help us here at Faith Bible Church to cultivate an environment where we believe the best about each other. And we embrace the truth that God isn't finished with any of us yet. And this will be a church where when people come here, they will see that this is a church where people bear all things people believe all things. 
Now, the natural progression in this is love bears all things, it believes all things, now love hopes all things. Hope is confidence in the future. It's trusting God for the future. The best definition I've seen of hope is it's desire with expectancy. It's something you desire to happen and something you expect to happen. And it's telling us here that love is optimistic. Love's not pessimistic or sour. Love doesn't lose hope. It never exhausts hope. Love smiles at the future. It's not soured by disappointment. Romans 15, 13, Paul writes, Now may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You and I, I have a living hope and a living Christ. Someone put it like this, love is a realist, but amidst the setbacks of life, it joins hands with hope. Love's realistic, but amid the setbacks of life, it joins hands with hope. And you and I are hopeful about the end, or at least we should be, and you and I should be hopeful about the end because we know God's plan for the end. If you don't know it, you can read the end of the book of Revelation, and uh, you'll certainly uh, find it there. We of all people should have hope, even in the dark days we find ourselves in. It's a story from years ago about a group of seminary students from uh, Denver Seminary. They would go to a local gym and play there, had kind of some leagues they would play in. And one night, the president of the seminary happened to be there, and he saw a man uh, sitting up in the balcony reading a book. So he went up there, it was about time to, to, to close, and he found out this was the man who kind of cleaned up afterwards and closed the building. And uh, so he, he sat down next to him, and he says, uh, what are you reading there? He says, I'm reading the Bible. He says, well, what are you reading in the Bible? He says, well, I'm reading the book of Revelation. And thinking to himself, you know, well, this guy probably has no idea what he's reading. He says, well, uh, what's it about? Uh, what's the, the basic, uh, uh, you know, s- storyline in the book? And he says, well, uh, we win. <laughs> And the, the president of the seminary thought to himself, that's a pretty good description because in the end, Jesus wins, and if we're in Jesus, then we win as well. That's really the message and essence of the book of Revelation. Christ is coming back to take over planet Earth, to set up a kingdom that will never end. And because of that, we win. And because of that, you and I should have hope in this life, even in the midst of daunting circumstances. Uh, Margaret Thatcher years ago, the former prime minister of Great Britain, said this, I am extraordinarily patient, provided I get my way in the end. (laughs) I like that. I can be patient too, as long as I know I'm going to get my way in the end. But think about this, in the end, we are going to get our way. We're going to get our way in the end because of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. And because of that, you and I should be filled with hope. We know that God is going to fulfill His promises to us someday, that His kingdom is going to come to earth. You and I should be the most hopeful people in the world, and I pray that we are, and I pray that people around us can sense that, and it'll have a a contagion to it. One final application of this is you and I should never underestimate what God can do in the life of a hopeless person. I mean, after all, we're all hopeless apart from God's grace. We all are. We see somebody that seems hopeless. You and I need to be hopeful that God can change and transform the life of that person and to not despair and to not faint. Anyone can change by the power of the gospel. We need to believe that. That needs to be our hope. Some of you here today may have a wayward child. You may have a a child who's an adult who's an unbeliever. or Maybe they're a believer and they've just walked away from the things of God. 
You may have an unbelieving spouse. You may be out of work today and suffering really difficult financial troubles. You may be facing a medical crisis or maybe even something that's uh, going to soon lead to your death if, if the Lord doesn't intervene. In all of those situations, the Bible would tell us that love hopes. One writer puts it like this. Sometimes in our family or in our own lives, we face a seemingly impossible situation. Perhaps our son or daughter has a failing marriage. And in spite of all our attempts to help, it threatens to disintegrate. Love will look for the faintest glimmer of hope and keep us praying for a restored relationship. I love this last statement. It will not accept defeat until all hope vanishes like smoke in the wind. That's what love does. Love endures. Love keeps on hoping. And you know, just to be realistic and honest, it's becoming more and more difficult in this culture we live in today to believe all things and to hope all things and to endure all things. There's a lot of discouraging news that's out there today as the world seems to be coming apart and falling to pieces. But that's what love does. It believes all things. It hopes all things. And then finally here this morning, it endures all things. Verse 7 at the end. The NIV says, love always perseveres. Remember back at the beginning of verse 4, it says love is patient. That word has to do with patience with people. But here at the end, he says, endures all things. That has to do with patience or perseverance with circumstances. So I love it. It's kind of the beginning and the end. Love is patient with people, but it's also patient and persevering in the circumstances of life. And the word here, endures, literally means to remain under or to bear up something, to bear up under a load. And so what it means here is love stays at it. Love persists in spite of difficulty. A love is resilient. Love has staying power. I mean, it's never used up. It keeps on coming, and it keeps on going. Proverbs 20, verse 6 says, Many a man claims to have unfailing love, but a faithful man who can find. A lot of people claim to have an unfailing love, but a faithful person who can find. Again, a lot of us may be running low on hope these days. <laughs> Uh, we may be running low on hope and endurance, tempted to give in to the discouragement, maybe even uh, give in to despair. We see all, all the turmoil and trouble around us in our society. seems like we're swimming upstream and kind of facing headwinds all the time. But the Bible tells us not to give up and keep hope alive and to remember that love endures all things. Love perseveres and it, it stays at it. There's a famous business book, I'm sure many of you have read it, it's called Good to Great by Jim Collins. And he talks about a high school track team that made a transition uh, from good to great. Over a period of five years, they went from a top 20 team to the top team in the state. And as one of the coaches, the assistants, was asking the main coach, he says, I don't get it. Why are we so successful? We don't work any harder than other teams, and what we do is just so simple. Why does it work? And he was referring in, the, in, in this to the simple strategy at that school that they drilled in to the heads of their team members, and that was, we run best at the end. They built that strategy into everything and emphasized running their best at the end of the workouts, at the end of races, and even at the end of the season when it counted most. And everything was geared to that simple idea that we run best at the end. They even, during practices, would put a coach 
uh, at the uh, two-mile point of a three-mile race, and during the races as well. And they weren't calculating how fast they ran, but how many people they passed before they got to the finish line. And the kids learned how to pace themselves and run with confidence, and they were constantly thinking, we run best at the end. And you look at our world today, it looks like we may be getting near the end. And therefore, you and I need to run like we've never run before. We need to run with perseverance. We need to run with endurance. There may be some of you here that are, that are uh, elderly, and you may be looking at your life, and you may be thinking, you know, I don't have a lot of years left on this earth. Run best at the end. Don't give up and quit. Uh, love endures. So I was thinking about love enduring this week. I was reminded of a book. I read this book, I think, a couple years ago. Um, it's a great book. It was very stirring. Um, it, it's called The Daring Heart of David Livingston. If you don't know anything about David Livingston, he was from Scotland. Um, he went to, uh, to Africa uh, several different times. The things he endured there are unbelievable. Um, he was a tireless opponent of slavery. Interesting thing in the book, a month after David Livingston died, the Zanzibar slave market in East Africa was closed, never to be reopened again. Slavery ended in Africa a month after he died. Was, a lot of it was because of his labor there. But he was a, a tireless uh, a worker against, against slavery, but he was an explorer, but he was a missionary. He's buried in Westminster Abbey, and on the top of his casket is a verse from John 10 that says, Other sheep I have which are not of this flock. So he went to Africa to, to spread the gospel there. But uh, the, end of his, the end of the book, the, the next to last chapter, is called The Long Way Home, and talks about his perseverance and what he was doing in sharing the gospel, his exploration. He was literally bleeding to death from the inside. I won't read some of the passages that are a little more graphic about that. It says, for more than three months, Livingston's party crossed wet territory. They wondered if it would ever quit raining. Literally, it rained every day, all day for three months. As the expedition slogged along, Livingston grew increasingly optimistic that he would see the fountains. He was looking for the headwaters of the Nile River. The horrifying slave trade in East Africa continued, but he'd not ended it. The source of the Nile River remained unsolved. He'd not discovered it. The Zambezi expedition ended in a catastrophe. He had caused it. The Livingston name was tarnished. He'd not redeemed it. But he prayed this prayer. Thanks to the almighty preserver of men for sparing me thus far on the journey of life. Can I hope for ultimate success? So many obstacles have arisen. Let not Satan prevail over me. Oh, my good Lord Jesus, nothing earthly will make me give up my work in despair. Eventually, his illness caught up with him. His intestinal bleeding increased. He just had you know, chronic dysentery. At one point, he said this, I'm pale, bloodless, and weak from bleeding profusely ever since the 31st of March. Um, at last, an artery gives off copious streams and takes away my strength. But he says, oh, how long, oh God, will I be permitted to finish my work? Eventually, he got to where he couldn't stand. He, all he could do was lie down, and he refused to give up. But after a lot of urging, his men finally uh, 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 convinced him to allow them to carry him. So they carried him, uh, carried him along uh, through these just wretched conditions. Finally, uh, if you've ever heard about it, uh, the death of David Livingston, they went to his hut one, one morning. Uh, they saw the outline of his body kneeling at the side of his bed. He appeared to be in prayer as if he'd nodded off in conversation with God. His body stretched forward, his hand buried in his hands upon the pillow. Advancing slowly, one of the men placed a hand upon David Livingston's cheek. His skin felt cold and lifeless. Livingston was dead. 
died there in his hut on his knees, the posture of prayer. One thing that's interesting, a lot of fascinating things about the end of the story, but to preserve his body, um, his friends there, the, 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 the natives there that lived in these villages, they removed his internal organs and filled his body with salt so his body could be taken and buried. But to me, this is a powerful part of his story. They, 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 his heart, they took his heart and they put it in a tin flower box and they buried it four feet deep beneath a beautiful mavula tree. Still there today, it's the David Livingston Memorial buried beneath this tree in Africa because they echoed his wish. He wanted his heart to come to rest in Africa. But you can read the story for your, on, on your own, but I can tell you whatever you're enduring today, it's nothing compared to what he endured if you read the end of his story of his life. Yet he kept enduring because he loved the people there and he wanted to share uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. As I read this story, you know, one of the things I thought about, where will my heart be buried? Where will your heart be buried? What, what is it that we love in this world that we're willing to sacrifice for and endure uh, for in our lives? David Livingston died at the age of 60. A broken man physically, but a man who'd endured um, in love. His was a love that endured. By the way, I think that's probably the reason for the title of this book, The Daring Heart of David Livingston. His heart's buried there in Africa. What's worth asking ourselves this morning, is your love a love like that? I think for a lot of us today, if we're honest, our love is pretty cheap and it's pretty weak. It doesn't endure very much. Can other people count on you to come through when they need you most? Can your spouse count on you to endure in your love for them? Look, I don't want to lay a guilt trip on anybody here this morning, and I realize there are biblical reasons to get divorced. But a lot of marriages end, most marriages end, because people just fail to endure. They fail to love. Because they fail to love, uh, they fail to endure. Do we have a love for others that endures? Do we have a love for Christ that endures? That's the way Jesus' love is. John 13, 1, I love that statement. Jesus is there at the Last Supper with his disciples, getting ready to wash their feet. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus is one who has a love that endures. In fact, his love endured all the way to the cross. He endured the suffering and shame to purchase a pardon for our sins. If you've never received that pardon that he purchased for you, you can do that this morning. You can accept the love that Jesus demonstrated for you at Calvary. He gave his life for you by simply trusting and receiving him this morning. Look, love bears all things, but when it gets weary, then love believes. But when love, when faith gets disappointed, love hopes. And then when hope finally grinds to a halt, love endures. That's love. That's biblical love. It protects, it believes, it hopes, it endures. It never fails. It will always come through. May God help us in our lives to have uh, this agape love. Let's pray together. If there is anyone here this morning, again, you've never received the love of God in Jesus Christ, may you receive him this morning. As I said at the beginning of the message, those beautiful words of Jesus, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast him out. You come to him today. You believe in him and trust in him as your Savior. He'll love you to the end. He'll never cast you out. Oh, Father, give all of us here this Calvary love, this agape love that we see in 1 Corinthians 13. Help us not to be able to just leave here today and slough it off and forget the things we've heard. 
Father, give us a love that protects and believes and hopes and endures, a love that never fails. Give that to us in our marriages, our families, here in this church. Father, help us to be a place that loves and believes and hopes in one another, always looks for the best. Oh, Father, keep us optimistic and looking up and keep us smiling as we look forward to and await the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask these things in His dear name. Amen.